Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Let's Get Civical. This is the podcast that breaks down politics, government structure, and dives into the context of current events, but in a super fun way. I'm Lizzie Stewart, comedian, feminist, and political junkie. And I'm Arden Walentowski, former Senate intern, campaign staffer, and political strategist. In this episode, we are talking with Ezra Levin and Leah Greenberg from the Indivisible Project. So grab your Indivisible guide and let's get civical. Everybody. Hey everyone. Welcome, welcome to Let's Get Civical. I am Lizzie Stewart. And I am Arden Walentowski. We have amazing guests today, Ezra Levin and Leah Greenberg, authors of We Are Indivisible, a blueprint for democracy after Trump. They are the co-founders and co-executive directors of the Indivisible Project. And we are so excited to have them on our show today. Welcome. We're so excited to be, here. <laughs> yes. to be here. Congratulations welcome. on your book that came out on the 5th, right? That's right. Yeah. A couple days ago. It's so awesome. Guys, go and get this book. Once again, it's called We Are Indivisible, a blueprint for democracy after Trump. We were talking about this a little bit before, but it is so good. And you guys have truly, I think, the best footnotes I've ever seen in a political book. But can you start off by talking us through the creation of the Indivisible Project and then what prompted you then to write this book? Well, we are former congressional staffers. Both of us started our careers on Capitol Hill during the beginning of the Obama era. And uh, as congressional staffers during that time, we uh, spent a lot of time up close and personal with the Tea Party. Uh, Mm. They came to our offices. They showed up at our (laughs) events. You know, they, they, uh, you know, staged sit-ins, et cetera. And for a long time, we thought of those experiences as just kind of like a depressing period in our early careers. But mm-hmm. shortly after the 2016 election, when we were kind of going through the stages of grief along with everybody else in our immediate communities, we were looking settled on anger. We settled on anger. <laughs> yeah. Love, appropriate we love emotion. Anger. Settled on anger. Spite. <laughs> very, very refreshing. Yeah. It's a very productive emotion. And yeah. um, we sure. were seeing, you know, we were seeing this kind of sudden surge of civic engagement around the country that we were getting added to Facebook groups with everybody we'd ever met who right. suddenly was trying to figure out something to do to resist Trump. And it occurred to us that actually we had lessons from that period when we had been watching the rise of the Tea Party. Mm. That you know we didn't, uh, we disagreed with them deeply. We disagreed with their violence. We disagreed with their racism, but they had had a couple of really critical insights into how to organize in a way that had a real impact on the national scale. Mm -hmm. And so we took those lessons and we thought, you know, our contribution could maybe just be making them available to other people. Turned it into a Google Doc. We put it online in December. Best laid plans. Start as a Google Doc. (laughs) We are reading from a Google Doc right now. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. So we put it online in December 2016. 
Uh, we thought, you know, our friends would read it and they would give it to their families over Christmas. And then maybe in six months, somebody would tell us that they'd use the Google document to ask a question at a town hall or something. And we'd be super psyched. Um, <laughs> and that wasn't what happened. It went viral and, you know, started getting press coverage and, you know, attention and everything. But more importantly, people started organizing in order oh, yeah. to put the theory and the strategy and the Google Doc into action. And they started calling themselves Indivisible Groups after the title of the Google Doc, which was Indivisible, a Practical Guide for Resisting the Trump Administration. And suddenly we were just in the middle of this amazing grassroots movement of people who were coming together in their own communities and building power to resist Donald Trump and to resist his enablers. And, and thousands of them too. And this, yes, this is in New York. Yes, this is in San Francisco. But I think the really incredible thing is that there uh, were indivisible groups literally in every single congressional district in the country. So That's East Tennessee crazy, yeah. and upstate New York, Trump country. Um, and what they are doing is building this power in their home turf. And that's yeah. what they've been doing for the last three years. What was it like to just like wake up one morning and you have groups organizing based off of a Google Doc you read? I mean, that must be quite profound. I can't even I can't wrap my head around it. You yeah. know, like like sure, like a tweet going viral is one thing, but like a full ass plan of action to combating, <laughs> you know, like what was what was like those first couple of days like for you guys? Was well, it just disbelief or? Yeah, well, we were flooded with emails yeah. from oh, all yeah, across sure. the country and they all said the exact same thing, which is this guide is full of typos. Love. It, uh, <laughs> oh my God. So would, mine would be so full of typos. They'd be like, can she read? <laughs> uh, they were right. So I mean, a pro tip, if you ever want some document like carefully read and edited, just put it out online, have Good. it go viral. <laughs> And people no, will pick people it apart. You know. People get free edit yeah. service. Yeah. <laughs> Who yeah. needs an editor when you can just make it viral? Love but, that. But yeah. I mean, it was surreal. It was yeah. absolutely surreal because these, you know, these Facebook groups started popping up: Indivisible Syracuse, Indivisible East Tennessee, and we were like, "Are the are those are indivisible?" Right. And mm -hmm. it it turned out. They were. And then the scary thing is they started contacting us asking, hey, we, we got a dozen people to come together this this weekend. What should we do? What should we talk about? Oh, my God. That would be terrifying. <laughs> it was oh terrifying. Oh, my God. And, and, and even more terrifying, they thought they were having a dozen people and 150 people showed up. <gasps> and that happened throughout the country. So we have these pictures That's of, so of churches and community centers packed to, uh, packed to the side of the walls with standing room and then people standing outside the rooms peering through the windows because that's all the space they had. So there wow. was this surge of energy all across the country. And the question was, okay, what's Congress working on now? What right. should we be showing up for? Yeah. What should right. we be fighting on right yeah. now? And that's and then, why we became yeah. Indivisible Project. That's why we set up this organization yeah. to support the groups on the ground. I oh, mean, we so definitely, within about 24 hours of putting the document online, we realized that this was bigger than the two of us or right. you know, even just a couple of people, a couple of our friends could handle. And so literally we <laughs> called everyone we knew to our house that weekend and we were like we're not sure what's going on right. but we have to respond to this we've right. got to get a website bring we your laptops we need a twitter account and we need a website and we need yeah. somebody to do like a legal check to confirm that we haven't told people to do anything <laughs> who knows a lawyer yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> whose dad is a lawyer exactly i remember exactly. we had like 30 or 40 people over to our house that weekend and um we just asked who who has a twitter account mm -hmm. and somebody on the stairs said and we're like you're in charge of social media Good. Uh, he That's turned out to be so really bad at social media chat yeah, but he, he did other things oh my god yeah. shout out to chad <laughs> anyways um yeah and so you know basically we started building out kind of like the functions of a nonprofit very quickly but yeah staffed by just anybody who would show up and who would throw everything else in their life out the out the door to to work on this for the first couple of months of the trump administration wow yeah that's really amazing mm -hmm. i love that you're just like at brunch and you're like uh 
Leah, do you also have 3,000 emails on your inbox? <laughs> like, oh my God, oh my God, we have to go home. Like, we have to get the check, we have to go Yeah. So talking about the book, you have, you've broken down, your chapters are broken down into lessons, basically. Mm-hmm. Would you mind giving our listeners just kind of like an overview of what those lessons are and like what inspired you to create the lessons and and how you landed on the ones that you did? Mm. Sure, well, so... Obviously, we got our got our start with putting our unsolicited thoughts about what you should do out on the internet. Love so that. You see this is <laughs> lesson kind of number an one: get Google. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> kind of an extension of that. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, the lessons are really about what we've seen that's worked mm. over the last few years. Yeah. Starting with our own experiences, there's some of it is kind of a reprise of the original Indivisible Guide, but a lot of it builds on that because mm-hmm. yeah. you know we're three years in. We've been organizing with people all over the country for, for sure. a long time. We've picked up a lot along the way about advocacy about elections, about the ways that you can actually have power in your own community. And so it starts with something very simple and something that guides everything else we do, which is the lesson number one, re-election, re-election, re-election. The idea that every elected official, they wake up every day thinking about how they're going to get re-elected or how they're going to move on to their next position. And that means they care enormously about their public image. And that means you as a constituent have a whole set of tools you can use to actually affect what they do. And basically every other lesson kind of stems from that. It's about how to affect what they do. It's about how to affect their public image and how to make them do essentially what you want or make them pay a political price for not doing it. Right. Yeah. It's so interesting because we we were in D.C. a couple weeks ago and we were doing a just a standard tour of the U.S. Capitol, as one does. And mm-hmm. we saw Nancy Pelosi walking to and from something looking mm-hmm. very stressed. And <laughs> I remember having this moment where I was like, can I take a picture of her? Wait a second. She works for me. Yeah. <laughs> and just like taking a photo. It is this weird thing of like, right. Elected officials work for us. Right. And mm-hmm. I think it's really easy to forget that. It's really easy mm-hmm. to make them seem unreachable or or untouchable or that they like 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 they're better or more mm-hmm. elevated than we are. When it's like, hold on a darn second, I put you there and I can take it away. I mean, not me, I, but like I being <laughs> um, a couple million people. So I, I do yeah. I do love that. Yeah. Well, and so much of the guide and so much of our work is about demystifying the yeah. political world, right? Yeah. Elected yeah. officials are people. They, you know, get dressed in the morning and they have childcare problems just the mm. same as us and they are doing their job and your power is to decide whether they're doing a good job or not. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I have some feedback. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and for folks who might not know, because this is kind of like what we would call like a grassroots movement. Yeah. Can you, do you mind explaining a little bit what a grassroots Oh, my God. First, I'll learn how to talk. What a (laughs) grassroots movement is and why people should get involved with them when they start happening around them. Yeah. So Indivisible is not command and control. We have obviously this national operation where we send out strategic advice and we help coordinate. But fundamentally, I think the special thing about Indivisible is it's made up of a lot of people who simply raised their hand and said, I guess I'll form a group. Mm -hmm. And that continues to happen. New local Indivisible groups are formed every day. If you want to get a sense of the local flavor of Indivisible, you can Google image search Indivisible logo. And you'll see National Indivisible's logo, which is great. And you can buy a hat and a shirt with it. Recommend it. <laughs> we have merch, guys. We <laughs> have merch. Have merch. Yeah, please, please buy some. Uh, but then keep on scrolling. You will see literally hundreds of Indivisible logos from all across the country created by the local groups yeah. because this is owned at the local level. And 
the reason why we are still around three years later, the reason why you didn't just see a surge in activism in January or February of 2017 and have it peter off is because people have created these communities at right. the local level. Yeah. They they came to fight the fascists and they stayed for the friends. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's such a good way to put it. You guys talk about the Tea Party and you, you've mentioned that that was kind of, you've learned a lot from the Tea Party mm-hmm. about how to basically how to organize and have effect on elected officials. But the Tea Party, I think, you know, they've kind of fallen by the wayside, like, mm-hmm. you know, successfully through progressive <laughs> organizing yeah. or whatever the cause. But they have, you know, they're not really as forceful as they were before. Do you yeah. guys worry about that for the indivisible groups? Like, or is that not, are you like, that's a tomorrow problem? I mean, I would say that the Tea Party, part of the reason that the Tea Party is no longer as vo- like a visible a presence on the national stage is because when you win, you tend to get a little bit complacent about things. Mm, um, sure. And fundamentally, the Tea Party, Donald Trump is the, like, he is the natural heir to the Tea Party yeah. politics and their brand of white grievance politics. And sure. he's in office now. And so I think that fundamentally what we're seeing is that there's a little bit of a demobilization that occurs with successfully taking so control sure. of the entire federal government and right. the courts. <laughs> right. Um, and so if we get to that point, I'll be thrilled. But um, I don't think we're we're not very close to that right now. Yeah, there's also I think the Tea Party is a little bit of a cautionary tale as well because there was a real grassroots movement behind the Tea Party. Right? Yeah. we saw it up close. It was not astroturf entirely at the beginning. There were people who were actually rising up, and then what you saw were uh, Koch brother funded national operations that kind of hollowed out the Tea Party. They tried mm-hmm. to take control of it and use it for their own purposes. And it's something we think a lot about because I, I do think that is a cautionary tale that this will not work if there is some national organization that is saying, hey, on Wednesday, we all do this. And if you don't do this, you're not indivisible. Right. You've right. got to maintain that local ownership. And again, yeah. I think the reason why indivisible is still here and operating and, and flexing its power on a regular basis is because the local groups are leading this. Right. And it's open to new entrants every single week. There are new people who come because of some awful thing that Trump did or because there's a city council issue. They're fighting mm-hmm. for the school board. Whatever the issue is relevant to folks locally, they can get involved by joining their local indivisible group. And that that's really important to us. So I – this question is is for me personally because I, I was <laughs> – uh, raised in Texas. Oh, so was I. Oh my god. Yeah. Hello. Buta, Texas. Oh, Houston. I was Houston. Okay. Good. You know, yeah. A little bit bigger. A little, just a touch, <laughs> just a touch bigger. But uh, so I, I have you know, friends and family who you know are I identify I would say as as Republicans. I, albeit ones that were probably left behind by what has happened with Trump taking power. Um, do you have, because a lot of what we talk about here is, you know, it resonates for me sort of like a very progressive liberal. Mm-hmm. Is there anything that you would say to former Republicans who feel ref- left behind by their own party? Well, so uh, to be very clear, the very first page of the Indivisible Guide, and this has animated our work ever since, is that we are not an arm of the Democratic Party. Right. And that's, that is really important yeah. because in many parts of the country, the word Democrat is a bad word. It right. is, yeah. Um, you would never show up where I'm from at the Democratic Party meeting. That's that's not where you would go. Mm-hmm. Um, but you might show up at your local Indivisible group. And what we found is that in especially red and rural areas where there's not a lot of progressive infrastructure, but where you're probably not going to show up at the Democratic Party meeting, meeting, we have Republicans and independents and Democrats who find this administration so egregious, so uh, against everything they think this country should stand for, that they're building up that power through indivisible. I think that's really important. Now, I also don't want to mince words. 30% of the population, maybe 25% of the population, they're hardcore Trump supporters. Mm -hmm. They're going to support him regardless. 
our goal is not to change their minds. Right. Sure. Our goal is to organize the grand majority of Americans who disagree with that because right. we know that there are more of us than there are of them. And the problems that we faced is that there just aren't enough of us showing up. Right. But if we do, we win. And that's not just some you know idealistic vision of the future. <laughs> We've been winning. Yeah. We defeated the single top legislative priority of this conservative government, which was repeal of the Affordable Care Act. Yeah. We retook the House of Representatives, which everybody thought was impossible. Right. We've mm -hmm. now driven to impeachment, and we're building the blue wave for 2020. Mm -hmm. The way that works is by new people getting involved. And literally, we saw this two days ago with the elections in Kentucky, of all places. I know. And Virginia. Uh, so uh, the, the, our solution here is is not let's just preach to the choir. Right. Yeah. We should be preaching to the choir, but we got to expand the choir. Exactly. Yeah. Right. And and also recognize not everybody's going to be on our side at the end of the day. Right. To that end, have you seen differences between the indivisible groups that operate in the like super New York progressive areas? Like I've been to those meetings. Yeah. And I'm like, you guys, we're talking about the same thing. Mm -hmm. Let's like come together on a message mm -hmm. and let's not fight about it. We both have the end goal of, mm -hmm. you know, yep. we want people to have health care. Yeah. Right. Like mm -hmm. every like it's a thing that we all want. Yeah. And you know, I come from the Midwest. I also have a Republican Where? family in Ohio. Heard of it. <laughs> Heard of it. Very what sad that the press is no longer state. <laughs> They're so annoying. Um, constantly predicting the presidential outcome. But the press is no longer categorizing Ohio mm. as a purple state. It's now right. like full right. red, yep. which is very interesting to me because of Sherrod Brown. But Well, well yeah. Texas went um, more for Hillary than Ohio did. Yeah. It makes me very depressed, and I have... Feelings about that, but mm -hmm. I'm gonna put a pin in that. My those. congressional rep for the House is a woman named Lizzie, and she's a Democrat. <laughs> My like hometown, yeah. um, mm -hmm. and I just think that's so great. That's so great. <laughs> it's so great. I'd be like Lizzie, it's Lizzie. <laughs> <laughs> but I think you know, just the way that the indivisible groups operate based on where they're located must be vastly different. And so I don't know if you guys like what you guys can say about what you've yeah. seen in that regard, or you know. Totally. Well, I think we we operate on the assumption that people are best placed to figure out like what is the right context and what is the right thing, message and what is the right issue to focus on for their specific community. One of the things that I would say is it's not necessarily sort of a geographic and regional divide. We've mm -hmm. got, you know, we've got fairly moderate indivisible groups in Massachusetts and we've got fairly left wing indivisible groups in Tennessee. Mm -hmm. um, and in fact, some of the some of the red state groups are kind of like, well, what do I have to lose? They're going to call me a socialist anyway. Right, right. right. And um, I found these other 10 people who yeah. are totally with me on this yeah, thing. Yeah. So like, let's do this. Yeah. So I think a, a lot of times it's really, you know, because these are groups that are formed by, you know, it's somebody raised their hand, invited their community, broadened out. A lot of times it's just really dependent on the individual group. And we think right. that's part of the beauty of the movement, honestly, right. both that you know, fundamentally, if you have a top-down chapter model where you tell everyone, this is what we're doing, don't do anything other than that. You know, here are the brand guidelines. Don't diverge from that. You get, you know, maybe you get exactly that. And if you tell everyone, we're part of a bottom-up decentralized movement, we're figuring it out together, you're probably right. going to be the best person to know whether to throw, on, throw in on this city council race or, you know, that policy initiative. We think that we can do a lot together on a national level yeah. if we're actually all showing up in unison around some top priorities. But fundamentally, this is locally led and driven. You get so much more than you would if you were just giving people one directive and expecting them to uphold that. For sure, yeah. Because then they have it's their own agency. Mm -hmm. And people will follow through on things that they think are yeah. – th that they know are their own ideas, their own volition. It's coming – 
organically from the group that they're a part of. Exactly. It's not coming from Ezra and Leah who were like, this is our message. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We yeah. can't come up with all these ideas. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we just wrote a Google Doc. Yeah, exactly. I don't know what happened. We're just trying to keep afloat. <laughs> yeah. And the stuff that comes out of the movement then is incredible. I mean, yeah. the creativity that you're able to tap into. I, yeah. You know, I think there is there is so much focus in the national conversation on what the quote unquote right message is. How can we get the right, right. message? What issue should we focus on? And sure, we, we can debate that, but and Leah touched on this, just as important or we would argue more important is who are the messengers? Because okay. if you have Ezra and Leah coming into East Tennessee arguing something, you're going to get one impact. But if you have people who actually live in East Tennessee going around to their neighbors, you're yeah. going to get something else. And some of the creativity comes out in the tactics too. So we you know, we advise people go to town halls, right? Yeah. Like go to town halls, show up, ask your member of Congress what's what. And what happened early in 2017 is many of the especially Republican members stopped holding town halls. Yeah, right. They were getting yelled <laughs> they at. Were, yeah. they, they were getting confronted by their constituents. And they're like, oh, I don't want that. I don't yeah, want right. to look bad. And so we had indivisible groups start holding their own town halls, inviting the members of Congress. And if they didn't show, making clear that the member of Congress is a coward and hiding from them. And in Michigan's 11th, they've Trot, who's a Republican, was supporting the repeal of the Affordable Care Act. Um, uh, the indivisible group in Michigan 11th held a town hall. He didn't show, so they had a live chicken on stage to represent him. And, <laughs> oh God. and they had a ton of press that covered that and sure. made very clear that Dave Trot was a chicken. Um uh, metaphorically, and he ended up not running for re-election. He, wow. he was embarrassed out of his office. And we saw that again and again. And it's not because Lee and I wrote a guide on how to use a live chicken to make fun of your member of Congress. <laughs> right. Was that not Step one, get a case. It's brilliant. Crazy. I wish I could take credit for it. Uh. But it's because the local groups are thinking, well, how can we drive our message through? Right. Um, how can we best communicate to our neighbors and our community about exactly how this member of Congress is or is not representing us? Right. And they figured it out. And that that's one example we tell in the book, but there are a ton. That kind yeah. of tactical innovation really comes out of a decentralized grassroots network like this. I think you guys would probably agree. I think it's easy. The more local an issue is, the easier it is to organize around it in some respects. Like the more local it is to a specific group, the people tend to be more the same. They tend to have similar interests. And so organizing in like a congressional district is easier than organizing for a Senate race, right? Or if you're trying to get the attention of your senator, like that's, it's easier because you're you're literally dealing with a smaller group of geographic Mm -hmm. It's a smaller geographic location. Like going into 2020, how do we get senators? How do we take back the Senate? Like how how do we? That's really (laughs) what I'm trying to do. Tell Barb and I right now how we take back the Senate because I feel like that. Yeah. I mean, you guys obviously know you like we can. The presidential candidates can talk about all these big policy proposals, but if we don't have the Senate, it it doesn't matter. Yep. Um, And so how do we get people – as you expand in your geographic location of of the thing that you're dealing with, the office that you're dealing with, how do you corral people to have effect? Mm -hmm. Well, I think that the most important thing for getting people – getting people to show up, getting people to get engaged is for them to have a plausible theory of how their activism is going to actually change something. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right? So it's not necessarily the unit or the geography. It's more like is there a real theory of change behind what you're doing? And so the power of the original Indivisible Guide was just saying to people, you have power, here's how you use it, here's the effect it will have. Mm. On a Senate race, it's just, it's honestly the same thing, right? It's about saying, you know, here is what we actually need to do to win, here's our theory. 
Um, Beto O'Rourke did this great in his own Senate race, actually, like literally emailed his plan out to supporters. And uh, not a coincidence that he had like one of the largest and most impressive volunteer armies at the same time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You didn't know, work out. But, didn't work you know, out, we'll but it came a lot closer. Yeah. Right. In terms of the other thing that I would say is that uh, I think we tend to think of uh, elections and, you know, governing season or non-election season as totally different things. And actually, the things that happen during the legislative season yeah. are actually the narratives that set and that shape an election. And right. so right For now, sure. a lot of Republican senators are incredibly nervous because they know that sooner or later they're going to be asked to take an impeachment vote on Donald Trump. Yeah. In a lot of those folks who are up for re-election in 2020, they represent states where Donald Trump is underwater right now. Yeah. And so they're going to face this moment where they either have to defend him or they have to split from him. And either way, it's going to have enormous political costs. And so a lot of the activism that we're seeing in divisible groups and that we're urging folks to do right now is about, you know, turning up the heat on the House, turning up the heat on the Senate to make sure that we're really pushing a clear message around impeachment, that we're pushing for clear accountability, that we're demanding a transparent process in the Senate. Right. And that is important because, you know, it's important for our democracy that this man be held accountable for everything he's done. But it's also important because it's about setting in place the election narratives for 2020, where Republicans are going to be asked to account for what they've done. Right. Are you, this is like an emotionally manipulative question, but are you you hopeful about 2020? Because I feel like personally I go back and forth. There are some days I wake up and I'm like, we're going to do it. We're going to do it. And other days it's like, no, because I think because the 2016 election was so viscerally surprising to me, like I was so, so certain that Hillary Clinton was going to win. I was just like walking through the streets being like, boop, 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 it's everything's good, you know? So I have so much fear around, like it's almost impossible for me to believe that he won't get reelected. What do you guys guys feel? (laughs) So what I would say is 2016 was a, a very unpleasant shock to a lot of people. Yeah. It wasn't completely off the map of the possible. It was, I think, a combination of the fact that, you know, the polls, there was a systemic error in the polls. And yeah. also, I think a lot of us had sort of this vague impression that, like, surely that couldn't happen. Because right. It was right. absurd. And so that right. kind of like, you know, even as Nate Silver was kind of like, no, seriously, there is a 30 percent chance that Donald Trump might get elected. We were like, yeah, no, no. Really. Yeah. Um, Stop. Yeah. 30. Um, and, and nobody is going into this election like that. Like right. we all know For there sure. is a real chance that he gets reelected. Yeah. We all know there's a real, very real chance we don't take the Senate. Like this is a real fight. Right. Nobody is nobody is sugarcoating that. Yeah. That said, I am I am optimistic. I think that if you were trying to think about what you would want heading into 2020 in terms of, you know, the overall political climate, his approval ratings, all of the kinds of indicators that suggest that a president is in trouble heading into reelection. Mm-hmm. We're in pretty we're in good shape. It does not mean that we don't have to spend every single day working on making right. sure that he is a one term president. But right. I think it's possible. What I'm much more nervous about and we talk about this in the book is that the longer term structural forces that helped him win in 2016, Mm -hmm. getting him out of office doesn't fix that. And we have big problems that, you know, within our system that are actually the things that enabled him. And if we don't tackle those problems, then we're going to get another Donald Trump in 2024. Yeah. 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 That's frightening. Or he'll just stay. (laughs) Or he'll just stay. Or it's Ivanka. Oh, yeah. 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 That was like one of the most frightening things I think I've ever heard somebody say was Hillary Clinton on Rachel Maddow show. And she was like, he could just stay in office. Like it's not beyond the realm of possibility. And those words like leaving the mouth of Hillary Clinton, I was like, mm-hmm. we're fucked. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's just, it yeah. was, it has a lot of gravitas coming, coming from somebody who's not an alarmist. Right. right. And right. the reason why that 
actually is somewhat convincing is because the problem is not Donald Trump. Right. He he is a grotesque bile spewing symptom of a much more deeper sickness, which yeah. is the entire system both allowed him to rise and has kept him in power. Mm-hmm. Right. We have literally every single Republican House member voting against election security bills. Right. We have everybody disregarding all of the evidence that is happen- coming out of the Ukraine. Uh, and this speaks to Leah's, Leah's point. We're at an inflection point for American democracy right now. So I, I don't know if we're going to win in 2020. Mm-hmm. I think there is a clear pathway to winning the presidency in the Senate. Mm-hmm. And also I know if we don't, there's not going to be another shot. This is not just the most important election of our lifetime. The The Senate is going to drift out of reach of any kind of progressive control. In 20 years, 70% of the country is going to live in 13 states because people are packing into states, mm-hmm. which means 30% of the country, which is more conservative, more white, more rural, they're going to have 74 senators. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So they are going to have permanent control of the Senate and by connection, the courts. Right. And there's nothing that we're going to be able to do to organize yeah. to prevent that from happening after 2021. So we've got this shot to save American democracy. We've got <laughs> okay, this limited window of opportunity. <laughs> I, so I am both, I, it's weird because the, the book is both very hopeful for this future. Yeah, it is. And also we don't mince words about the stakes. Right, yeah. Which is we're, we have this limited window of opportunity to secure our elections, to massively expand the vote, to make DC a state, to unpack the courts, to make the kind of structural reforms necessary so that we have a representative democracy that actually represents people. But right. yeah. we have a limited shot at this. So I, I I, am a mix of very, very optimistic about the future because I see that in the near future. In right. 15 yeah. months, we could be talking about this legislation. We could have a president and a Congress that is actually a pro-democracy Congress, a pro-democracy president. And right. We could be talking about this legislation that just passed the House that's made its way through the Senate that does all these great things that makes democracy representative. Or we could be talking about permanent conservative control of the federal government for the next generation. Right. Those are the two options in front of us. I love it. I feel horrible. <laughs> I have two follow-up questions. One, how do you guys feel then about doing something about the Senate where it's not everybody gets to, every state gets two votes? Mm-hmm. So we, in the book, we focus explicitly on what can we get done in 2021? And that constrains mm-hmm. us to some extent because mm-hmm. there are a set of constitutional amendments I would love to see. Mm-hmm. The, the Senate is naturally biased against any kind of progressive control. It's naturally more white, more rural, more conservative. And that's been true since 1789. That way it was manufactured to be that way. There's also a provision in the Constitution that says you can't amend that. So you'd actually have to amend the Constitution twice in order to change that. You'd have Mm -hmm. to amend that part of the Constitution and then amend it uh, a second time to actually change it. So that's not in the cards for 2021. And so we need to recognize that our house is on fire right right now. We are facing permanent political irrelevance going into the future. And so what can we actually pass through with a simple majority vote in the House, simple majority vote in the Senate, and signed into law by a friendly pro-democracy president. And that's what we focus on in the book. Not to say I wouldn't like to uh, pass a a constitutional amendment to undo Citizens United, to eliminate the Electoral College, (laughs) to change the Senate. We need to do those things. And also, not in the cards for 2021. We need to be real about that. But what is in the cards for 2021 is enfranchising 30 million new Americans. What Mm -hmm. is in the cards is making D.C. a state. What is in the cards is unpacking the Supreme Court and adding term limits. What is in the cards is providing small dollar donor matches to to, – uh, counteract the the huge impact of big money in politics. Right. Like all of that is simple legislation. It would be a massive shift in how our government works, but it's in reach. Right. My second follow up question to the kind of the Senate 
thing is that indivisible the indivisible groups are known for you know they they stage sit-ins they do big protests they mm-hmm. or they you know find ways to get attention so that they can bring focus on the issue that they care about how do you guys feel i guess as an organization or the leaders of the organization about the idea of compromise mm-hmm. like how do you cuz not everybody you're not going to win the things that you want every single time mm-hmm. and I think one of the things that we've gotten away from, definitely in a national conversation, and for sure in the Senate, is we, there's no compromise anymore. Mm-hmm. It's rare. I mean, we when we were in D.C., we <laughs> happened to be sitting in the House gallery when they were debating the the resolution to condemn Trump for taking the the Kurd, you know, mm-hmm. the turkey and the Kurds in that yeah. situation. Yeah. And it was, it was bipartisan. It was bipartisan. It was great. Like we just happened so to be weird. in the gallery that day watching them debate it, and it was amazing to see Republicans and Democrats basically by large majority, stand up against an action taken by our president that is anathema and has caused the death of hundreds, mm-hmm. thousands of people. So how do you, as an as individual indivisible leaders, think about the idea of compromise mm-hmm. when you're trying to get something through, when you're trying to work with, you know, if you talk about partner, you talk about partnerships in your book, like not every partnership group is going to want the same kind of thing. Yeah. How do you guys work with the idea of compromise? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think I would start by, oh, dear, I'm, I'm going to be so, this is going to be a bummer answer. Um, <laughs> block, we block, don't. Um, it can't be worse than we only well, have one shot. Uh, I, think, I think we have to start from kind of the premise that, well, let me, I, I'm reminded a little bit of the Gandhi quote when somebody asked him, what do you think of Western civilization? And he said, I think it would be a good idea, um, <laughs> which was to say that like nothing that the Indian people at that point had experienced looked anything like civilization. It right? looked like something that was much harsher and a colonialism that had been radically different from the ideals that were espoused mm-hmm. by it. And I think, you know, honestly, the experience that we've seen in Washington over the last, you know, decade plus has been a scorched earth approach to compromise from the Republican Party. And so I would love if there were grounds for compromise yeah. on anything that was substantively going to change how Americans experience their lives. But what we've seen is that, you know, from literally the first day, for example, Barack Obama got into office, Republicans understood their role as blocking absolutely everything that he wanted to do. And, you know, that is that is not just because they're ideologically opposed to it. It's because they have a a theory of change, which is we win when government is perceived as do nothing, as unable to deliver. If this guy is unsuccessful as president, we're more likely to beat him in the midterms, which they did. We're more likely to beat him in the general election, which they couldn't pull off. And, and the American people lose, right? Because yeah. fundamentally, why would we have faith in government when there's no relationship between what you vote for and what actually happens and right. gets translated into policy? Exactly. And, you know, I think the, the, to the example that you're citing, yes, that's true. We were able to get to a bipartisan resolution condemning Trump's behavior, but there are actual tools at Republicans' disposal to hold him accountable if they want to. Oh, for sure. And the fact that they're willing to kind of, you know, they're they're willing to issue a resolution, but they're not willing to actually use any of the real power things that would make it harder for him right. to for him to do these horrifying things. And yeah. so fundamentally, you know, as long as there's no party on the other side that's actually capable or organization or like institutionally inclined to compromise, I think that we have to be thinking about this in terms of, you know, how do we actually hammer out consensus within the Democratic Party in order right. to move forward on an aggressive agenda and recognize that the era of bipartisan compromise may not be coming back for a while. For a while. Yeah. And I guess that's true. I mean, I, I was thinking in terms of interleft, interprogressive oh, compromise. Oh, but no, no, no. But your point is completely valid and and absolutely. And, uh, yeah. Well put. That is it is hard to compromise with a with a party that 
fundamentally does not want that has the easier job of just being obstructionist. But I, I do think we need – I mean I know you want to ask about uh, interleft politics. Yeah. But even even with Republicans, I do think we should distinguish between Republican voters and Republican elites. Mm-hmm. Because Mitch yeah. McConnell stands on the floor of the U.S. Senate and calls election security and voting rights in D.C. statehood socialism and a power grab. Sure. Uh, and he does that because he understands that if democracy is representative – he loses. And so he opposes those things. But it is not a conservative value for it to be dis- difficult to vote. It's not a conservative value for it to be easy to purchase elections. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. And mm-hmm. I know that because we can look at the 2018 elections, the same year that the Floridians elected a Republican state legislature, a Republican governor, and a Republican senator. They passed the single largest expansion of voting rights right. since the Voting Rights um, Act of 1965. That was so amazing. It was a super majority vote. Yeah, more right. than 60% voted for it. Now, then the Republican elites they elected at the state level gutted it this right. year mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. there is that gap. So I think when we're talking about these potential democracy reforms, which we cover in the book, yeah. they're actually not capital D Democrat ideas. Right. They are wildly popular among the broad swath of Americans. Now, that doesn't mean we're going to get Mitch McConnell on board. We should not think that he's going to wake up. I don't want up. Mitch McConnell on any board. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Board. Yeah. Hey, I want him overboard. He's I not, want him drowning. Yeah. Well, we're a nonviolent movement. Metaphor, very clear, metaphorically very clear, drowning. Yes. We're in a metaphorical ocean. <laughs> Indeed. Electorally drowning would be great. Electorally yes. drowning would be <laughs> exactly. amazing. I want to drown him with votes. Exactly, exactly. So the, the, we're not going to get him on board, but we can get a large percentage of the American public on board with these ideas. And when it comes to the interleft politics, yeah. I think that applies as well. I think there are clear battle lines that have been drawn around social and economic issues, whether it's climate or healthcare or taxes. That That's real, and we're going to have to find that out. Yeah. But when you look at democracy reforms, it's actually a little ideologically wacky. You look at the presidential <laughs> candidates right now um, who are really leading on democracy, and we're hoping they're all going to get there. But you look at the Democratic primary candidates who are leading on democracy. The two leaders right now are Elizabeth Warren and Pete Buttigieg. They are from different ends of the ideolo- ideological spectrum right. uh, when it comes to the Democratic primary. They have very different ideas on health care and climate and you name it. But when it comes to democracy, they both say it's the number one priority. Yeah. They both say we need to eliminate the filibuster in the, in the Senate to get it done. And they both are looking at pretty big structural changes, whether it's changing the Supreme Court or looking at exactly how we're electing our representatives. They, they have big ideas out there. Now, I'm hopeful other folks can do it, but – What's clear from the Democratic primary is that the battle lines that we've been uh, that have been drawn and that we fought over for so long are not as clear on the democracy reforms, which again gives me hope that we might be able to actually get it done in 2021. Right, like there's room for movement. There's 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 room for people to have a conversation. It's not a full stop. Yeah, yeah. You can pass bold democracy reforms and be a moderate on other issues, yeah. and mm-hmm. you might be very very progressive on other issues and not prioritize democracy at all. Right. I know we talk a lot about what we want to do in 2021. What are some things that, you know, some like pieces of legislation or things that folks can do right here or from now Mm -hmm. until Election Day 2020? You know, what are the big things we're looking at, we're concerned about? legislatively or otherwise. Can I, can you answer specifically, but I make a very broad. Sure. So just, uh, <laughs> sure. We do, do the same thing. Like Arden, you take this, yeah. but first let me. <laughs> just, just to frame, I think there is a, a common misconception that elections are won through a get out the vote effort in October or November. That right. you go and knock on yeah. doors or make calls then and that's how you win. That right. is not how elections are won. 
the way that we saw the blue wave get built in 2018 was the same groups that were strong in 2018, endorsing candidates and registering voters and getting at the vote. Those groups built their power in 2017 by yeah. fighting back against health care, by fighting against DACA being rescinded, by fighting against the tax bill. That's how they built their membership base that allowed them to build the wave. So the answer to you know how do we win in 2020 is not necessarily anything related to the 2020 election directly. Right. It is what are you doing right now to pull more right. people into your movement? And one answer is there's a big national mobilization around impeachment that's going to happen mm. the day before the filing of the articles of impeachment. And that's mm. happening likely in the next month. Yeah, and you God. can be part of that. <laughs> yeah. You can actually show up and send a clear message that you care about this. And that's about impeachment. Yes, it's also about building this movement as we head into 2020. Right. Well, you also took the thing that they oh, could sorry. do yeah. so. There are probably other things you can do, too. <laughs> other than impeachment, are there certain pieces of legislation yeah. that you're looking at, you're keeping track of? You know, Because I feel like impeachment has just become yeah. the yeah. thing that yeah. we talk yeah. about. Because, I mean, <laughs> how can it not? Yeah. Right. But, I mean, there's still other things that are being passed, sure. things that are not being voted on, looking at you, the Senate. Right, yep. right. <laughs> what are those things that you're sure, keeping tabs absolutely. on? Well, there are things like Democrats are working on a prescription drug bill right now. We're urging them to make that as bold a bill as possible yeah. in order to make sure that it's really part of a strong election argument in 2020. Fundamentally right now, and we actually put out a guide talking about what you could achieve during this period when Democrats control the House and Republicans control the Senate. You know, fundamentally right now, what we can do is we can pass the kinds of bills that we might be able to actually pass in 2021 okay. or that might we might be able to actually make legislation in 2021. So it matters that those bills are good. It matters because those will be the templates. That's what people will pull off the shelf and actually move right. when they're when they're really they really have the power to pass it. There's also a lot of work to be done around just mobilizing on the issues that we care about. Right. So the Supreme Court is moving an incredibly dangerous docket full of cases through this yep. year. Yep. November 12th, there are going to be nationwide demonstrations standing in solidarity with DACA recipients. So it's really, I mean, I would say that the simplest answer is get involved with a local group and yeah. figure out, you know, what are the options for legislation? What are the key mobilization moments? What's going on in your own community that you can be active in? Um, and then who else can you pull in now mm -hmm. so that they're ready to be knocking doors in nine months? And it may be that the most relevant thing is not a national campaign. Right, it might be right. in your area the most Locally. relevant thing is a city council issue. Yeah. And they're having a hearing and you show up. That is great. You should show up. Very few people show up to those things. I know. But mm -hmm. that's why it's so important to get involved locally. You can listen to all the national news you want. They're not going to tell you what's most relevant in your community, which is why it's important to, to organize locally. I love that. I love sure. that. Your book is now out. It is. And it is. where can we buy it? Is it everywhere? It is it's everywhere. everywhere. Yes. It's um. Get yeah, it at I, your local independent bookstore, yes. or um, it is also available at Amazon. With an audible, uh, an audible book. We read the introduction, um, but then we had real professionals read the rest. We love. <laughs> we simply love. Yeah. And once again, listeners, their book is called We Are Indivisible, A Blueprint for Democracy After Trump. It is so great, you guys. It is really such a wonderful read. Thank you so much for being here. And if you guys are interested in seeing where your local chapter of the Indivisible project is you can go to indivisible.org see all of their amazing things and if you like us lizzie and arden <laughs> you can follow us at let's get civical you can also rate us review us and subscribe to us we love you so so much and we will see you next wednesday bye bye, bye.